there are uh, actions that we can take to demonstrate care for other, other people for each other. And uh, so as we begin there, uh, Hebrews 13, verse uh, number 3 is where we will start. And the scripture says, remember uh, the prisoners as if chained to them or chained with them. And those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for how it always speaks just what we need. God, it's living and powerful and able to discern into the thoughts and intents of our heart, your word says. God, thank you for giving us a trustworthy account of your own love for us and directions uh, for our lives and I pray that your spirit would open up our ears and hearts now speak to us by your word and by your spirit cleanse us God so that we can receive what you want to speak to us now and we pray it in Jesus name amen Dr. Seuss said Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. You didn't know you would come to church and hear uh, Dr. Seuss today, I bet. But that's a good word. And Unless someone like you or someone like me cares a whole awful lot, things are not going to get better. They're not. Because God works through people like us to make things better, people who care. We think about following Jesus it always stretches us. It always requires more than us than we're likely to give without being prompted. And Jesus in Scripture prompts us and he tells us this is what your life uh, should look like. And he uses writers and prophets to speak to us. And that's what we see today in this passage is that the Bible is showing us that uh, our relationships have importance for God in our uh, discipleship and making us like Christ and conforming us into his image. There's no discipleship that occurs that isn't always going to urge us out of our comfortable complacency. That's what discipleship does. It comes to you in your uh, comfortable place, and it shakes you up, and it encourages you and challenges you out of your complacency into risk-taking and obedience. And so discipleship is willing conformity to the one who said to us, follow me, right? When Jesus showed up and he introduced himself in the lives of people, that's what he said to them is follow me. And so that's what discipleship is in our lives. It's following Christ. It is actively in our behavior acknowledging that he is Lord. That's the confession every person makes in order to be a Christian is Jesus is Lord. Nobody is a Christian without that confession. That's what Romans 8, 9 says. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says that if, uh, if we don't confess that Jesus is Lord, we're, we don't belong to him. That's our fundamental understanding of what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus. He's the Lord. We're not. We're ordering our life under that understanding. 
it's taking to heart his lordship and prioritizing our faith into the acts and behaviors in our, our life that will give support and evidence to the claim of our Christianity. That's what the world around us wants to know is does this matter to you? Is this important in your life? Do you really care? Or is it for us so much just language, so many words? The scripture tells us that discipleship means not being pressed into the world's mold. That's in Romans chapter 12. It says, don't go on being pressed into the world's mold, but be conformed by, uh, into the image of Christ by the renewing of our mind. That's what we're doing as disciples. We're understanding what thus says the Lord and then conforming our life in obedience day by day. Behavior by behavior, thought by thought, we're bringing our life into alignment with who he is. And that's what discipleship looks like in our life. And so when we read this passage, when I read it at first, I'm like, how do all these things go together? You know, what is it all, how does it add up? And so I think that one thing we can see is that this passage shows us how to care in a variety of situations. It shows us that we should care how to treat people that, that we're going to be in contact with or some people that maybe we don't think about but we should think about. That's what it shows us. And so when we look at the scripture, I think it shows us here. I, I could give us a short answer. The an, the, an answer to apathy is you must care. That's the answer to apathy. You must care. You can go home now. That's the message. You must care. And so it shows us some, several ways to care. And the first one that we see in the passage here is caring for people who are stuck. You couldn't be more stuck than to be in prison. You're in prison. That you are there. There is no freedom. You're limited by the walls around you. And when I first came to faith in Christ, we lived in Augusta. We attended a church there. And my pastor introduced me to prison ministry. And he went with me. There was a place on, in Augusta on 4th Street and Walton Way where we would go on Sunday afternoon. I never went there without being sick on my stomach. I was so nervous and scared. That's the truth. I never went that I didn't feel intimidated and overwhelmed. And my pastor would go with me, and he would just go, okay, it's your turn. You get to preach today. And the way it looked is like you walked into this room and still doors closed behind you. There was a guard not in the room with you where you went. And a lot of times guys were in there sleeping off drunks. It was a temporary uh, situation for many of them. They were waiting for their sentencing. And so we would walk into the room. There was a TV on. There were people playing cards. You had to ask the guard to turn the TV off. They were watching football. I would be angry. If somebody walked into the room where I was and turned the TV off when football was on, <laughs> be like, what are we doing here? We're watching football, playing cards. It was not a structured service. You walked in and said, hey, we're here to have church today. And already, you know, people are pretty angry at you for even doing that. And then we preached the gospel to people there and at another place that was a state prison where they expected you and it was a much better environment. But eventually, my pastor just said, this is your ministry now. And he stopped going with me, and I continued to go for a while doing prison ministry. And so you got to experience 
what people were going through in a situation like the Bible describes here when it says don't forget that there are people who are, are incarcerated around you. And, and here, obviously, the context is probably, although we don't know, but probably it's talking about believers who would have been incarcerated in the first century because of their faith. We know that that happened. We know that Christianity was an illicit religion in the way that they understood it. In other words, it was illegal to be a Christian, and so you could be arrested for it. And if you were thrown into jail, it wasn't three hots in a cot, like they say. You know, the reality was that you needed people to care for you and bring you sustenance. You needed somebody to show up and care for you. And, and so these Christians who experienced persecution, the context there was to write to them and to say, hey, don't forget your brothers and sisters who are incarcerated because of their faith. And Christianity posed a thread in the first century that was unique. It was a pluralistic uh, society, in a sense, in Rome. They permitted uh, all kinds of religions. But Christianity felt like it uh, posed a particular threat because they wouldn't worship the emperor. There was a point in Rome where a crazy emperor was like, I'm God. If you don't offer incense to me, then you're out of step with what it means to be a Roman. And so the Christians were like, there is only one God and you are not him and we're not bowing our knee to you. We will not compromise. And so consequently that was the price that they were paying was their, the loss of their freedom. When you, if you went forward into verse 23 in chapter 13, it seems that Timothy had just been released from incarceration and we, we know that it had to do with the idea of the preaching of the gospel, their boldness to preach Jesus. And so the encouragement here is to remember those in chains as if we were chained along with them. That's what it says. We're encouraged to be empathetic, to care. Do you care? Can you uh, extend your heart out to people who are in a situation that is different than your own? And I think that the scripture challenges us to ask this question, how would you feel in their place? We forget about people in circumstances like this, but the passage is saying, how would you feel if the, if the roles were reversed and you were the one incarcerated? Then the, it encourages us to say something like this, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. Even when people are incarcerated for just reasons, they still are humans, right? We forget that, that this is a person who has a story. And that their story, while uh, maybe not something you can even relate to directly, that underneath that is a person who had a set of experiences that led them into a situation where they lost their freedom but not their humanity, not their dignity, not their worth, not the idea that they should be uh, redeemed and the possibility of redemption. And I found that going and preaching to people in situations like that was rewarding because sometimes what's true is people have to hit the bottom to look up. They have to go, I know this isn't working. I know I need something. And very often you would find people who are open to the gospel. So the scripture says, remember those who are incarcerated who are in chains is the way it puts it as though you were chained alongside them I've seen firsthand that sometimes people can become victims of the justice system 
We don't like to think about that, that there are people who actually end up incarcerated even though what they did they were falsely uh, accused of. I saw that up close and personal with a friend. And so the scripture invites us to see people in difficult situations as humans with needs. We can expand this uh, to remember that people are often caught up in other kinds of chains. There are the chains of addiction that often are uh, people are enslaved and they're caught up. And I think it would be okay for us to look at this passage and, and say even our empathy, our concern should go out to people in circumstances like that because the truth is probably everybody in this room is touched by that in some personal way. We know somebody that's stuck and addicted. You know, recently uh, we were asked to host AA here again. The church used to host AA groups, and so there wasn't a good reason not to, and the elders prayed about that and talked through it and deliberated met with the folks that made the request, and they meet here on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 11 to noon. And you know that it's a redemptive work. That's why we say yes. It's redemptive. It's a place where people find freedom and hope. And so it's a good thing. And I think it's consistent with obeying what the passage is trying to teach us here. But also the scripture says that a person you should obviously care for if you're married is your spouse, the person that you're married to. And so, when we think about what the scripture says here, this is uh, relevant, of course, because scripture always is, but it says marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So this is how I think that the scripture ties together, is that it says you have to also express care to the person that you're married to and not become uh, entangled in adultery. You know, we think about adultery and the way it's portrayed in our society. Affairs, they're called, are often characterized by glamorous and adventure, by glamour and adventure in literature and film, but that's definitely not what people experience in life when marital unfaithfulness occurs, right? It, in literature, in film, it seems to be glamorous, but I've known enough people who have gone through betrayal in their marriage and adultery to know that it's not glamorous, to know that it's not uh, something that brings happiness into people's experience, and they don't find fulfillment. Instead, they typically experience remorse and brokenness and unimaginable difficulty. And always, always regret out here somewhere that a decision that was avoidable was made that now has impacted the fabric of a, a marital relationship in a way that may or may not be uh, re reparable. It may not be something that they can now repair. They may have torn the covenant that they made into jagged pieces that can't be fit back together in some comfortable way and so that's why the Bible says listen here's a way you can care you put the person that you made that promise to in a position that you do not compromise what you said to them you fulfill your promise to them it's this is a I love this Okay, this isn't scripture, but uh, Jason Isbell says, you got to try to keep yourself naive in spite of all the evidence, believe, and volunteer to lose touch with the world and focus on one solitary girl. That's the sense of this. 
you focus on one solitary girl or man as it you know applies to you. But I love that, the idea that you deliberately shut your affection up to one human being forever and ever. Amen. That's what marriage is in Christian understanding. Is that we're working together and we're, we don't pay attention to anybody else except for that person God gave us. Who knows whether a person can restore their marriage. It's possible, not easy. The path ahead for people who endeavor to repair their marriages in the aftermath of adultery and unfaithfulness probably include untold hours of expensive therapy and counseling. Here's an alternative. Think of the harm that can be avoided by working equally hard on loyalty and faithfulness in our marriage before making a foolish and catastrophic choice to cheat on your spouse. You think, this, isn't, this is a room full of church people. No, no, no. I've lived long enough to know that people in all kinds of contexts do stupid, stupid things for which they end up deeply remorseful and regretting and also unable to take it back. Can't take it back. It happened. Listen to how the Proverbs address this. Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? You're like, who does something stupid like that? That's right. That's what the proverb is asking. Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? The answer is no. He can't do that. If he walks on hot coals, he will blister his feet. So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will not go unpunished, the scripture says. A wise person anticipates the disastrous fallout of infidelity and adjusts their life carefully to avoid it. The answer to being satisfied in our marriage is to be deeply in love with Jesus. That's the answer. That's how easy it is. Be deeply in love with Jesus. You won't commit adultery while you're deeply in love with Jesus. Not possible. And so the scripture says here, our affection, our love for Christ, our love for our spouse are the same. Of course, different, but the one affects the other, and there's no denying that. Judgment, it speaks here into this passage, is often the consequences that are built into moral failure. We think, what's, what's it mean, judgment? The consequences often are exactly what the judgment is. It's like equal to the failure that was made. I'm not saying for sure there's no redemption on the other side of this. All I'm saying is the Bible is screaming a warning here to the wise. Be wise. Listen. Adjust your life in a way that doesn't cause you to be a casualty or your marriage to be a casualty. And it's a way that we express care. Another thing that the Scripture talks about here is not so much caring in the, in the uh, sense of people, although it's always about people, but caring as uh, it comes to how we use wealth. This passage, uh, when you look at verse number 5, when it says, let your conduct be without covetousness, the word in the Greek has to do with greed. It's a word that they would have understood had to do with uh, unhealthy attachment to money. 
So there's a healthy and unhealthy way to think about money. I grew up with um, parents who loved us very much but did not know how to handle money. I have two older sisters and myself, and we grew up relatively poor. And some of that, not to you know disparage my parents because they loved us very much, but they didn't learn how to handle finances. We had a home foreclosed on us. And you remember these things when you're a kid. Like, embarrassing. It was, I'm sure it was embarrassing to my parents, but it was embarrassing to us too. Cars repossessed. Not because my parents weren't good earners, but because they never learned how to handle money. They just didn't get it. When I met Frankie, and I, I saw my wife, and saw like how their family was so stable and made good decisions, it was a breath of fresh air for me. And she taught me, is teaching me still probably, to be a more financially responsible person. So when the Bible here is talking about money and handling of it, it's not saying that money's evil. We'll see that. But what it's saying is it can be misused. A person's relationship with it can be unhealthy. And we have to understand God's intent for wealth and care about that. My former pastor used to say we're supposed to uh, love people and use things, but we often love things and use people. Work is honorable, and wealth is a test. It tests your trust in God, for one thing. And we see that again and again. When we don't live contentedly, we are expressing an unhealthy attachment. Wealth becomes idolatrous. That's what the passage is saying. Go to work. Work hard. Earn money. It's, it's a healthy thing to do. Have the right attitude about it. But don't get out of balance so that you begin to live for wealth. That's the instruction that we see in the passage. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says you can't love God and money. He says it's impossible. He says you'll either have a deep affection for one or the other, but you can't love God and money. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy says, now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. That's how it happened. I was there when my babies were born. They didn't have anything. They just came into the world with nothing. Paul says, guess what? That's how you will leave this world, too, with nothing. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. It says, look at what it says. Not those who become rich, those who desire to become rich. In other words, your ambition, your desire, your goal and priority is confused around the issue of what money and wealth are for. That person is on their way to drowning in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows, the Bible says. Notice what the passage says because it's always misquoted. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say love of money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's what's condemned is the love of money, the pursuit of it as the priority in a person's life. And so when we think about the proper relationship to wealth and, and money, 
we see that earning has its place and that a wise person, part of your discipleship is that you learn to think about the place of wealth in your life. Use it correctly. Have discipline in respect to it. Some of the worst situations that people go through, especially when we think about what stresses people out in marriage, what is it? It's the misuse of finance. It's not learning how to handle it correctly. So Bible is not calling money evil. It's saying if it supersedes your love for God, it's evil. It's going to take you to places that God will be pushed out to the margin of your life. Jesus, again, he says, you can't have two masters. And in that section in Matthew chapter 6 where it occurs that Jesus says that, he's, he's really talking about worry. And he's talking about trusting God day by day. And the idea that, like, if we become so consumed with, you can't be consumed by worry and trust God. They're antithetical, right? They don't work together. Somebody said worry is an unconscious form of blasphemy. I think that's true. Because what we're saying, what I say when I'm overwhelmed by worry is, God, you can't handle this. It's too big for you, God which is blasphemy, because there's no such thing. The last part of this passage teaches us about caring for leaders, spiritual leaders. It calls them rulers here. Interesting. We think about what, what does it mean to oversee, to rule. Well, it doesn't mean, because we know in other places Jesus said, uh, your leadership isn't to be like the Gentiles who lord it over there. Followers, that's not what spiritual leadership, it's modeling, it's example, it's, it's by life uh, that the scripture makes it clear here. So I think about this passage and what it says, it's clearly talking about spiritual leaders because it's, who are they? They're the people who taught the word of God to you, that's what it says in the text. That's who it's talking about, people that taught the word of God to you. I, the, when we got married, came to faith in Christ, Brother Marion Jay was our pastor. They called him Berrien Marion in Augusta because if anybody died and didn't have a pastor, the funeral home called Brother Marion, and he would do their funeral, Berrien Marion, with the Lord now. Such an awesome uh, pastor, man of God. He had worked uh, for a long, long time as a bivocational pastor, then transitioned and Grew a church into a very healthy congregation, baptized Frankie and I, and uh, just loved us so much. He, he was so good to us, and he, he um, I, I always joked, threw us in the deep end. You know, it was like, he, he, that's how you learned. It's like, here, take this task. I know you can't do it, but here, try. You know, that was what he did. He encouraged us and gave us opportunity and loved us and, and modeled for us. He wasn't perfect, and you could see his imperfection, but he modeled constancy, and he modeled godliness to us, and he modeled love to us. And So I think about that. That's what this passage means. Or my pastor, Brother Ronald Hasty, who died last year. Brother Hasty was the person that took me to the prison and like uh, threw me in the deep end eventually. Gave me opportunity, trusted me. He had about five young men in our church that he, on Wednesdays before the midweek service, he would take that group of guys into his office and invest in us every week, pour into our lives, and then give us opportunities. The first time I got to preach in front of my 
church family was because Brother Ron recognized that I could and, and put me in front of people and loved us, was a great expositor. He's the person I learned how to preach listening to, if I know how to preach. It was like listening to that man unpack scripture. Take it, go verse by verse through it, explain it, apply it, illustrate it. And just love us and, and see the value in people and, and, and be there for us. And so I think when we think about what this scripture is saying, it's talking about more than fondness. I do have fond memories for people who like that in my life and others too. Many of them friends, some of them contemporaries. But it's not just saying admire them, it's saying imitate them, right? Not just admire, imitate. Have they been examples of what it means to be constant? Then you be constant. Have they been dependable and faithful? Then you be dependable and faithful. Have they been humble and generous? Then you be humble and generous. That's what it's saying. Have they willingly invested in you? Of course there are people who have willingly invested in you. Then what it's saying is you willingly invest in others. That's how we take the example that they've left us and... And we obey the sense of this scripture. Have they taught you, shared their faith with you, led others? Then the Bible says you do the same. Have they prayed for you and with you? Then you pray for and with others. Have they sacrificed and given themselves away? Then you sacrifice. You give yourself away. That's what discipleship looks like. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you heard from me in the company of many witnesses, these pass along to faithful men that they in turn may teach others. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you heard from me in the company of faithful men, these you, you pass along to others that they in turn might teach others. That's discipleship. That's multiplication. That's what God calls everybody to do. We, we witness and observe in others the kinds of uh, behaviors that look like mature Christianity, and then we commit. Did they give blood, sweat, and tears? Give blood, sweat, and tears. Imitate them. Did they look for the best in others? Look for the best in others. We could go on and on and on. There, I read this quote this week by a writer named Eli uh, Weisel. He says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. I can't think of anything worse than saying that my faith in God is the most important thing in my life and then living an apathetic existence that denies that very statement. That's the worst thing imaginable for me to go through life and say the most important thing for me is God but then live as if that's not the most important thing. Discipleship means that we underscore by our behavior the values that accompany a confession that Jesus is the Lord. Following Jesus always stretches us and requires more than we want to give voluntarily. But gratefully... He not only calls us to a new way of life, he also empowers us to that life in reality. I love uh, when you think about what John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. He doesn't say, I'm showing you the way. He says, I'm on the way with you. I go with you. He, he shows us. He died for us. But then he's with us now every day. I've talked about this before, going on vacation once. We're leaving today to go on vacation. 
back before there was uh, Tom Tom and GPS, we went to North Myrtle Beach. And if you get to North Myrtle Beach, there's a point where everything is just one continuous condo. And if you, your directions, like, you, and I'm a man, so what do men never do? Like, we never stop and ask anybody anything because we're men. We know eventually. But it, it's like we got lost, and we were almost in Calabash. And if you're in Calabash, you're way beyond where you're – they have good seafood, but you're past your accommodation. So it's like what Jesus is – it's as if Jesus gets in the car with us, and he becomes our direction. That's what the Bible says when he is the way. He doesn't leave us. The scripture says he's with us and he starts us on this journey and upholds us every step of the way. And that's the question for us today is, are you on a journey with him? That's what discipleship is. It's permanent. It's constant. We're on a journey with him. He, he's the one that is speaking into our, our lives I want to pray for us, and we'll have this uh, time of commitment here today, and, and uh, hopefully we've been helped and challenged in truth about how to live, and um, God, we're grateful that you care enough to show us what uh, often is countercultural, difficult, maybe even for us sometimes, helpful, because it directs us how to adjust our lives to you, and we pray now that You'll help us to be obedient to you. God, help us to care uh, with the kind of passion that is appropriate to who you are, the one who's enthroned and rules and who one day we'll worship and see face to face. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?